Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 22nd chapter. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends, depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Here again these words of Paul from the epistle. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Some of us have different personalities here, uh, and some of us are probably prone to be people pleasers. We are inclined, just the way that God put us together, to not rock the boat, not make other people upset to whatever they want. If you can give it without really putting yourself out too much, give it to them. Of course, we're social beings after all. We're humans. We're meant to live with other humans. It is not good that man is alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Sound familiar? It's from the early part of Genesis. And of course, we know as social beings that words can make conflict. What you say to others, in front of others, can cause a lot of problems. You even know that sometimes words can go too far and they can ostracize you. We live in an age where young people, but even older ones too, can be canceled. If they just say something that they thought for all of their life, but seven years ago without telling them the world said, you can't think that anymore, they say it, well, there goes their job. So at best, I think we are careful with our words, or at least most of us try to be, I hope. We try to be judicious in choosing what we say, when we say it, to whom we say it, how long we say it. But at worst, sometimes though, I think that we cross that line, and knowing our words of importance, we cross the line from being prudent over into the realm of cowardice. We hold our tongue when something ought to be said, when there is something right and true to say, and we say, ooh, I don't want to stick my neck out, so I just won't say anything at all. Or perhaps even it's worse, because we are so afraid of the reaction of our social peers or whatever it is, whatever setting we find ourselves in, we even say something false, like we, we say a lie to go along with whatever lie is being championed at that moment. Whether it's being silent or saying a lie, it has the same desire, though. The aim is to go along to get along at best, or to avoid a harsh, negative reaction at worst. St. Peter, of course, understood this, didn't he, on Good Friday when he was out in the courtyard? 
They'd arrested Jesus, taken him in, and he was kind of following. The others had already scattered, but not Peter, no. He was following, well, we soon found out how bold Peter was when a servant girl said, you have the accent of a Galilean. Are you not one of his followers? And he said, no, no, I don't even know the guy. He completely denied knowing the Lord, not once, twice, but three times. He understood what an angry mob can do and what words can do, and we do too. And so, hence the temptation for Christians. The temptation not to speak good, right, true things when they need to be spoken. The temptation to speak false things that ought not to be spoken. It's a real and present temptation for some of us, maybe even many of us. And if it is... I think Christians, we ought to do two things because of that temptation. Number one, be on guard against both being silent when we ought to speak and saying things we ought not. And we ought to speak rightly. We ought to always, when the time and place is right and true, say what is right and true, especially concerning God and the things of God. And for some examples, some good examples of how to do this, I want to consider this morning two men, St. Paul and Martin Luther. First, St. Paul. Because of his former life in Judaism, as he described it, Paul knew the dangers of speaking Christ to people. Remember, before he was that great apostle who wrote half of the books of the New Testament, he went around trying to kill Christians. Quite the conversion story, quite the turnaround. He knew how dangerous it was for him to be doing what he then was called by the Lord to do. And really, it wasn't just his former life that he knew that. He did, of course, have that played out in his actual life after his conversion. I was trying to think of a good summary for this, and I have a hard time getting better than the laundry list he gives in 2 Corinthians 11. Indulge me for a moment here. Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and in cold, and exposure. I think he's made his point. Preaching Christ was a lightning rod. Paul knew it. Paul lived it. And it was a lightning rod, not just for the Jews who resented that this Jesus of Nazareth was being proclaimed as Messiah that they waited for, but also for the Gentiles. He even says it explicitly right there. The Gentiles in many places hated him and tried to kill him too. The gospel was either foolishness or a stumbling block that if it didn't convert the people who heard it, it brought out the worst in them, it seemed. Not an indifference, but an active burning hostility to the one who preached the message. And yet Paul didn't stop he didn't remain silent, keep his mouth shut, and he certainly did not change the message to go along and get along with the adversaries. It's not because the threat that they posed to him wasn't real, it certainly was, and it's not because Paul was just some sort of super Christian, better than you and me, who really had his life 
and his morals together. No, read Romans chapter 7 and you'll hear a confession that puts most of our confessions to shame coming from Paul himself about his own sin. No. Paul held fast to the gospel and preached it boldly and clearly in its truth because, to be frank, he knew it was true. That's why he did it. And moreover, he knew that not just was it true, but that God, not men, not the men who loved him, the men who were indifferent, or the men who hated him, God, not men, would be his final judge, even as he was the present tester of his own heart. Now, Paul's firmness and boldness in the gospel is not unique to church history. He's not some sort of outlier, well, he, this one guy did it right, so let's talk about him. No, he's not alone. His zeal for the Lord and the message of the Lord's salvation defined the rest of the apostles too, those who had been disciples, the twelve, and yes, even as we know, Peter eventually came around. And then after the time of the apostolic church, the days in which they lived, you have 1,500 years later, that zeal and that confidence for the Lord and his truth was shown forth in the great reformer, Dr. Martin Luther. I hope, room full of Lutherans on what we call Reformation Sunday, I hope we know the story well. I'll give you a recap just in case. During the years of the Middle Ages, the gospel had become obscure, kind of caked over with other messages, with contrary messages. The central message that Paul preached, Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, as we have memorialized in the cornerstone of our building out front, that was all but lost in the mix. Rules upon top of rules, designed for their own purposes to maintain the power of the clergy and the church and their money-making indulgence machine, that had taken the place in the mouth of the preachers and the minds and hearts of the people who were associated with Christendom. And though he grew up in that setting, Luther had this benefit. He did what I always tell you to do like once every two months. He read his Bible. <laughs> he knew the Word of God, read it and said, well, I don't see anything about these indulgences and all of this works-based righteousness in here. What I see is a righteousness from God based on faith alone for the sake of Christ alone. He discovered that truth in the Bible as it was always there the whole time. He started proclaiming it and thank the good Lord for the printing press, he started publishing it so that other people could come to know too the word of God and the central message of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. But of course, the people that had the system, the control of the power up until that point, they did not like it and everything came to a head about four years after he nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg in the year 1521 at the Diet of Worms. Worms is a town in Germany. For the sake of political unity and their own power, the Holy Roman Empire and those under him, especially the law inside of the church, they demanded that Luther, standing before them, recant. That is, say, I was wrong, I'm sorry about everything that he had written. It had caught on like wildfire. So many people were glad and joyful to hear that to get to heaven, I don't have to pay that monk money to get a piece of paper, but I have to repent and believe in Jesus. That sells. And it was, and they were angry about it, so they said, Luther, say you were wrong, and we're going to let you off with a light slap on the wrist. Now, 
it was kind of a major decision, and it wasn't because he was wavering, but he did what you and I probably do. If you have a major choice ahead of you, you take some time to think about it. So I think it was the next day, 24 hours later, however many it was, that Luther came back before them, and he offered his now famous defense. Unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I cannot and I will not recant. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. And thus, the Reformation movement continued. Thus, the gospel continued to have free course and was not put back in a bottle. Like Paul and the other apostles before him, Luther held on to the good news of God's salvation in Jesus, and in that moment, when put to the test, he sought to please God, not men. And indeed, insofar as he made the good confession in the face of the opposition and the pressure, he did actually please God. Now, until the Lord comes back and this world is over, there's always, there's always, always, always going to be pressure for Christians to recant our confession individually and corporately. Fallen men, people unregenerate who don't know God, who don't know his love, who don't have the Holy Spirit, well, they want to be told that they are right and they have no use for a God or people who worship that God who would be a judge over them and their unbelief and their sin. And so, they buck the gospel, the idea that they need a savior who bled and died for them. They reject those Ministers or not, anybody of you is a preacher insofar as you speak the gospel. They reject those who preach sin and grace, who preach the God of the Bible, the God of an orderly good creation. And you do see this time and again, and we're seeing it increasingly indeed in our own country. If they have power to apply it, they will use that power to pressure into silence those who speak the gospel of God whether it is a raw and violent power or a subtle and a social one, like we were talking about at the beginning, its aim is the same. Be silent. Don't talk about this Jesus. Lie about him if you have to. But we know the game. I hope we do. Do now if you didn't before. It's a game that's been played from the very beginning of creation. And more than that, on top of that, we know the truth. The truth that men, wicked men of this world, their power, their schemes, their designs, their aims, those are actually like vapor. They are fleeting. When they perish, their designs perish with them. Powers of this world, even its structures, are temporary. We know we know with St. Paul and Martin Luther and all of the other faithful witnesses before, during their time, and since that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We know that. And so knowing that and believing that, as Reformation Christians, we confess it. We say it. We speak it. Not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts and not only tests our hearts, but blesses and keeps us. The same God who will one day be before us face to face 
and will vindicate us and bring us into his kingdom forever. Amen.